0: Guard is joining in, and he's seen and extraordinary, set it for Saliba. for Kai Osaka, beaten out by the race and touched in by Jesus. Bacary Osaka, Such noise, a crowd of
1: Gunners euphoria. Hello, and welcome back to the Bruised Banana FC podcast, where today we're getting to talk about our Monday night's 1-0 win against Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park, which for the first half, I think, looked pretty routine, uh, quite dominant, playing some really nice football. A lot of the players really kind of showing that they're adjusting to the system. And then obviously certain things happen in the second half, which puts us into squeaky bum time. But we'll talk about all that later. But to join me here, I've got, actually, i got a present for you guys. I have right here a random superlative, adjective, Generator, so you're getting the real uh, business here for introducing you. So first of all, we have we have the itchiest Varun. How are you doing, mate?
0: Oh goodness! Well, I wasn't itchy until you said that. Now I am. (laughs) This is the best decision ever.
2: Itching to talk about Arsenal, am
0: I right? Exactly. Way to put a good spin on that one, Ben. I couldn't think of that. (laughs) We have. The greediest
1: Drew, how are you, greedy Drew?
3: That's literally not even true. Get out of my face, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm good. How are you guys?
1: It's <laughs> not as bad as Ben's. Um, <laughs> we have the creepiest Ben, how are you, creepy That's Ben? I like it. <laughs> right, yeah, um, <laughs> creepy, I guess. <laughs> right. I do one for myself as well. Oh, I'm the cleanest, so there you go. No, this rig, get out of here. <laughs>
0: no, no, it's called Club Number Drew, and you guys <laughs> get yeah, into it. it. He gave himself that rigged
3: money. rigged.
1: Alright, I did another one and now I'm the greasiest. So you're happy with the greasiest?
3: Yeah, it's better. It's probably taking baths all the time. That, there we <laughs> go. More appropriate.
1: Alright, so kick things off. I think it's only right that we talk about the man of the match, which was 105 million Declan Rice, who is now not the most expensive player in the Premier League after Kai Salo's kind of as he said himself made him take um <laughs> make him take it down off his wall. Um, but he was fantastic in this game. It was 34 out of 37 passes, which was a 92% accuracy. One chance created, six passes into final thirds, one attack, three recoveries, two ground jewels. One in the first half, he was kind of more on the right side of that midfield. You could see him kind of like he, he creates the chance for Eddie. Um, in the second half, he has to go over to the left. His heat map looks unreal, it's just covering everywhere. It's literally like you know, the ocean. Covers seventy percent of the world, and the rest is covered by Declan Rice. So, first of all, I'm going to point it towards yourself, Drew. How good was Declan Rice in this game?
3: I think I'm out of superlatives, and I do think this was, you know, I think a lot of. I'll the give you
1: one. Have... He yeah, was the narrowest. No,
3: that's not true.
1: He was the best. He was <laughs> the better.
3: best. That's better. <laughs> so I think obviously, fans were excited when we when we brought him in. You know, he looked good in uh, when he, when he featured before. Uh, Monday night, but I do think that was such an ideal, almost kind of coming out part because of how Palace are set up. You know, a lot of the things that we struggled with last season, uh teams that were good in transition, you know, on the counter trying to exploit the space we leave them behind when we go forward. It showed how well he can cover that. I do think and also you know, he played in that lone six role with Partey being at right back. And then you saw how good it can be with with uh, Havertz and Odegaard in front of him in that midfield three. I think it was really it was really encouraging performance all across the board, but for Rice by himself to show that, you know, ideally long term, depending on what happens with Partey, that he can operate by himself in midfield as just kind of that lone sort of uh, deeper midfielder where um Ertiger gets forward. You know, obviously Havers can contribute defensively and we'll come on to that later, but it was brilliant. And the way he can play out of the back, his distribution is excellent, you know, technical quality was there. So yeah, I think across the board, man of the matches was justified. Um and again, it's against a tricky opponent in Palace. Even when they're, you know, away from home, they can be tricky. But at Selhurst Park, it's a really difficult place to go play. City only won there uh, one nil last season as well, and needed a, a last minute penalty to do it. So, you know, a lot of fans are looking at the result saying, you know, you know just one nil, etc. But you know, you know given the given where it was, um, given how he himself played, yeah, it's, it's not much more to say. He was use Excel.
1: Yeah, and I think it's probably worth saying that the game that you said just then—the the the one 0 Man City win—was actually the last time they lost at home, which was on the 11th of March. Since then, they have been unbeaten at home, and I think this is the first time Roy Hodgson has lost since he lost at home since he took back over as Crystal Palace manager. Okay, so we obviously like Declan Rice. Just the words Rolls Royce gets thrown around a lot, right? We hear it. With Saliba, and I think that's that's completely fair. We always heard it with Rice, and I think that 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 performance, as you were just saying, Drew, like it, it completely epitomised um, a Rolls Royce in that sense because he was everywhere, he was doing everything. I think that it just shows really how incredibly dynamic he is and and what he can do when you kind of give him that that license and that freedom to to affect so many areas of the pitch. Um, another player that is getting—I don't want to say good praise because I think that it's it's been very kind of up and down but obviously we're in a period right now where Kai Havertz is still finding his place in the team, we're still finding where we want him to play in the sense of, of the system Um just to read out some of his stats from that game 24 passes completed at 88.9% accuracy 3 progressive passes 2 touches in the box, 8 jewels one, which is obviously the most in the game Which and 8 jewels won most in the game against Forest as well so we're seeing that from a defensive perspective, and maybe even a, a a ball winning perspective in the attacking third, like because there was multiple times that Ramsdale now has that target to hit, even when he's not playing up front. Um, but I think the two touches in the box is maybe the flip side of it. Is that part of the reason why I bought him is because we want him to have those runs into the box, and I think that's maybe the one thing we haven't seen from him yet. Uh, so Ben, where that you have. I don't know, this, this expectation for Havertz, I'm not really sure what to call it because I feel like people didn't really expect us to to want him and then sign him. And now he's here almost kind of looking to see what he's going to give us. And now that we've had time to kind of, I guess, like digest what we've seen from him in Chelsea and what it was at Leverkusen, um, I think we're just waiting to see how this evolves what do you make of his first two? And I'll, I'll put in the community shield as well. What do you make of his kind of first three games as an Arsenal player?
2: Yeah, um, I think he's getting a lot of undue criticism. Um, a couple of people that that I, I respect the opinions of on Twitter have come out with the sort of he he'll look better on rewatch, and I sort of agree with them. It's he's a player that maybe doesn't catch the eye immediately, but does a lot of good things and is often in the right sort of places. As I said last, I think last week, we will get used to giving him the ball in those spaces much more. Um, if you look at the, uh, one of the Eddie Nketiah chances in the first time, I think it's when he hits the post. Kai Havertz is basically at the back post making a run. And if Enketia spots him, then, you know, it's 1-0. Um, we have the same for the Enketia goal against pa- uh, Forest, where Havertz was open at the back post. And you're not expecting him to be found every time but the fact that he's there and he's making the the run and being at the right place at the right time I think it will all sort of click soon well I hope it will anyway I'm not particularly worried about him because I think that he has all the qualities that are needed and he's sort of been messed not messed around but his versatility is costing him sort of valuable education in where he should be playing which is a whole new position but, you know, against Palace, he was chucked up front for the last few minutes. Um, against City, obviously, he played up front. So he's clearly going to be this option that can play two or three positions for us. But it means that in the position that we are using him primarily, which is sort of that new one that he has never played before and we've never played with before, it's taking a bit of time for it to gel. But I think the, the shoots are really encouraging. Um, and I think... You know, he's working really hard, he's pressing well, he's winning the ball back, he's doing all the stuff off the ball that sort of make up for the fact that he's not on the score sheet or on the assist sheet every single game. You know, it's sort of the bare minimum stuff he's doing really well and then he can just sort of build from there.
1: I think that last bit is probably the main point is that I think in terms of his general performances, he hasn't done badly. He hasn't done fantastically either. I think that where you assess him is that kind of that middle point that you almost kind of alluded to there. But I do think that when you're coming into a new team and you're playing a role in the team that is very kind of new in in its in its birth, and and we're still not we're still working the kinks out of it. I think that during that period where you're just kind of working out what needs to happen, what works, what doesn't work, what you need to do is what you can to help the team and I think he is doing that in the, in the sense of his physicality um like uh, how he's winning the ball um and then in little moments you're seeing his quality um so varun another player that we we know really I don't have we spoken about him much recently um Benjamin white has been in my opinion one of the best right backs in the league and obviously now he's playing right center back but one of the best right backs in the league of last year but he didn't really get the credit for that and it felt to me whenever I spoke to a rival fan or any of my mates that I don't support Arsenal like when I'd say to them when when we were doing like kind of team the season stuff and people are, are kind of bring up these names and, and to be fair I mean really last year I'd go for Trippier but when you kind of put Ben White in the conversation the the opinion is always well you know it doesn't really give much going forwards and I, I feel like that doesn't really quantify what Ben White does so well um uh, because there's right backs or, or like defenders will say that that play well, but not many people do what, what Ben White does, and that's give a solid seven, eight, or nine out of ten every week. He's so consistent. And I remember saying after the Crystal Palace game that I think that most neutrals watching this game probably wouldn't even know who played left wing for Crystal Palace because he got no joy. And and to further on that point, um, uh, the person who did play left wing, Jeffrey Schlupp, got. expected assists in this game, which is lower than every outfield player other than Saliba and Joel Ward. So he got nothing, (laughs) essentially. So my question to you, Varun, is why is Ben White so underrated?
0: I think one thing is that uh, as a defender you will kind of go under the radar in a good team and a solid team. Um, If the defense doesn't have too much to do or they regularly deal with the issues and it's not always one player uh, that's just sorting out all the issues, then the defense goes a little bit under the radar as a whole. I know Saliba gets a lot of the plaudits, but like you said, Ben White does a lot of the dirty work and I don't know, maybe it's the fact that he's Mr. Dependable as well. He's always there. Um, I don't know if listeners out there or uh, anyone else has seen uh, the little segment from Michael Tim's uh, interview with Rob Holding, but he said that uh, Ben White even played with a grade two or three hamstring problem when we went away to Newcastle uh, in the 21-22 season. So he's and and nobody noticed it. None of the fans watching really could tell something was up. It's the fact that he's just always available, always does everything, but then also never really appears in the spotlight outside of playing a match. It's it's well known that he doesn't really do much related to football once training or games are done. And that's another reason that I think he goes under the radar. He doesn't make waves in any way whatsoever when arguably his performances should probably get a lot more credit than they do because he does offer a lot and he does actually offer plenty going forward his overlaps with Saka and his relationship there between him Odegaard and Saka last season were a joy to watch Um, I'm amazed when rival fans don't really remember or rate White's performances because from what I see, and I tried to focus on White in the rewatch of the Palace game, he is just constantly there. He's always there, like you say, giving 8 out of 10s at least.
1: I saw another thing as well. Um, it was before the Community Shield, but it was kind of in that kind of gap between there and the season where it was, I think, on p- potentially Ray Fernand's channel where he's got an Arsenal fan on and they're doing a combined 11. And when they get to right back, He's arguing for Dallow and I think is like a decent player. He's a good player. But in my mind I was thinking, and he was saying that he wants Dallow over Ben White because Dallow's got it going forward. And I was like, well, oh, yeah, then the other side of it is Ben White is hugely better defensively and Ben White's had a hugely more impressive season. So it, it seems mad to me that stuff like that even becomes like a debate. And the same with England. Like, I know Ben White got a call up at one point and then at one point he was sent home. We don't really know why, but it does feel to me like he doesn't really get a look in in England. And I, I can't tell you why. Like, it, I saw like Southgate is going along the lines of we're waiting to see if he's going to be going back to centre back. So he, we've seen him at centre back. He played centre back the, the season that you were talking about the, with the Newcastle game. He played centre back the whole season and had a really really impressive season. We've seen him there. We've seen him play there in a back three for Brighton. We've seen him play right back for Arsenal in a, a position that kind of is a bit more narrow at times and even kind of goes into midfield. So it's, it's to me it just feels like he's one of those underrated players. Um, and now we're at a point where. There is a point of the game, unfortunately, that we have to talk about, and I'm going to point this towards whoever of the three of you are, is the angriest. So I'm going to ask you how angry you are at some point down the line now. Um, but we were dominating this game, and other than the odd counter, which is always going to happen, especially at Selhurst Park, because Crystal Palace are a good team and they're potentially good, like obviously good at home. We were completely dominating this game, and you look at the field tilt; we were absolutely cooking them, and then about the 65th, 70th minute, it changes. And it doesn't take a rocket science to tell you that there was a big thing that happened in the 65th minute. And it was that the ball goes out for a throw-in, Tomiyasu ends up getting a yellow card for time-wasting. And for the sake of being as balanced as I can, um, I do think, in my opinion, we took the mick a little bit with this throw-in. I don't necessarily think that Tomiyasu deserves to take that yellow card, but I can understand from a certain point of view that we were trying to take a bit longer than we should have done, even though, and I'll say this right now, the average time for a throw-in in this game was 19 seconds, and Palace had 16 uh, throw-ins to our 13. So, you know, a lot of potentially long throw-ins that didn't completely unpunished. Um, but I do think that if you are going to make an example out of Tomiyasu by giving him that a yellow that he doesn't really deserve, it's like a team yellow, then I do think that when you get the yellow that he eventually gets sent off for, then you have to really feel like that's a yellow card. And to me, if that's a yellow, fair enough. But I'm sure we'll talk about this. 10, 15 minutes beforehand, Saka's running straight at the box. IU's got him, not only when I say by the shirt, he's got him at the back of his collar and in the bottom of his shirt as well. And he literally drags him down on a yellow card. A yellow card that he got from a foul. So not a, a team yellow that Tomiyasu got, an actual yellow card from being not like within the rules of player safety and whatever else you want to call it and obviously he doesn't get the second yellow and then he's the player that Tomiyasu very kind of Tomiyasu grabs his shirt but it's 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 very tenuous I think I think it's a very very kind of small small kind of grab but you say it's just consistency for me but I'm going to lead us on to one of you now I'm going to go through the three of you I'm going to ask you from 1 to 10 how annoyed you are at this uh, at this event? So, Viren, out of ten, how annoyed are you?
0: Uh, eight, I would say. Eight. That's high. I That's mean, high. You, Drew, you know, you, you, know a, you know, it's a poor decision when Dermot Gallagher actually disagrees with the ref's call. A bit mental, to be fair.
1: Yeah,
3: <laughs> so it's a solid thirty-six. I feel like
1: thirty-six. Yeah, well, Ben, I'm... you've got to be angry to beat this, my friend.
3: <laughs> Good
2: luck.
1: I'm actually just a three. Just a, okay. Right. You can you you calm I'm, down for a I... second there, Ben. No, we'll come back yeah, to you. Well, just... I, just, I want <laughs> to release just... the dogs, Ben, because I'm annoyed, and that's my agenda. Okay. <laughs> I want to release the dogs. Drew's on a thirty-six.
3: <laughs> yeah, I just I just kind of feel like. There, there are other. I think I I don't know. I just kind of feel like, obviously, the ref doesn't have a stopwatch uh, on him. Assuming he's not the one clocking how long it takes to take throw-ins, but it's just from the eye test, you know that players are taking longer than and Obviously, if you want to kind of crack down on time wasting from throw-ins for you know accumulation for for sides doing it, why that moment? Why and so fast as well? You know, it's very hard to tell within seven seconds or eight seconds. That and I, was going to take another 10-11 maybe you don't know yeah. so I don't, I don't I just, want
1: to go full Balotelli as well but it seems like and I, I, obviously this is from the, the eyes of an Arsenal fan it feels like whenever people try and make an example of people it feels like it's always an Arsenal player <laughs> maybe I'm not way, being fair to say that I'm thinking of the Martinelli yellow card I'm thinking of when Jack got sent off for a tackle on the halfway line against Swansea years and years and years ago and we were told that's the rule now and we never saw it again so that's the only reason I say that
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily disagree, and I hate to be, I don't like to be tinfoil hat about things, but it does seem that we are obviously, (laughs) there's to be a lot of disproportionate odd calls surrounding bookings and red cards, I just kind of feel like, I just think he was, I just think it was handled poorly, and obviously there's bias in that, you know, they didn't come back to bite us in the end, we saw the match out well, but I just feel like, that's just so fast, like eight seconds, like, you know, the yeah, the average throw in a match take longer than that typically unless you're trying to rush play. You know, it's just it, like
2: it, it wasn't it wasn't for the eight seconds though, was it? That's the thing. It was for the um for the goal kick that Ramsdale faffed about with about thirty seconds before and the referee came out and said, No more time wasting. It was then um uh, I can't remember who initially was gonna take the throw. They gave it to Havertz. Havertz uh thought about throwing it for a while, then gave it to Tommy It was just sort of a Right, you're just taking the yeah, piss so then, now a bit. So then, would, it, so then
3: wouldn't you, the, wouldn't you then book Havertz then, because he went to take the initial, but then he passed it away, so wouldn't Havertz be yeah, one yeah. that would be excuse of time wasting?
2: It's possible. I think it was just a case of right, you've taken forty seconds to take this throw in, Tommy Assi. You happen to be the bloke with the ball in your hand, therefore you are getting the yellow card. It was sort of a, a collection of Arsenal time wasting,
3: I, rather I don't than. Yeah, I, a, I, do, a, I do agree with. That. I I don't disagree, but I think I think I agree with that point, but I disagree with who got the booking. That's the thing. Like others wasted far more time than he did, so why would you you could even go back and play and you could just give Ramsdale the card. Or Havertz, again, who was the one who took longer and then he's the one that passed the ball over. So he is probably the, the, the more targeted player in that in that scenario. I don't know. I mean I do agree that and I mentioned that in the what in the in the Twitter chat, you know, and during the match, I do think it was kind of like a cumulative thing where well, the ref is just kind of just like, well, you know, now, now it's just going on and on and on, so someone's going to have to bear the brunt of it, but I just think the wrong person did. So it's just like, yeah, I don't know. It's bad luck, I
1: guess, but still, nevertheless, still frustrating. Let me ask so you this, on man. The, on that... oh, oh, you, you go, Vern. you go, yeah. mate, you go.
0: I um, was just going to say, on that point, Um, I want to kind of uh, hear your guys' opinion on this. Since we're seeing yellow cards dished out a little more regularly now for time wasting and it hasn't actually been just in our games seen it in others as well do you think it might be beneficial if the league or football in general starts looking at using var for yellow card offenses as well or at least second yellow card offenses um, in case things like this happen again and they can actually look back and say look you maybe your view was blindsided or whatever as the referee but this isn't a yellow card
1: they should be doing second yellow cards anyway, I think, because re- it ends up as a red. No, they they don't check. They can't check or overturn second yellow I know yellow they cause... don't, but they should, is what I mean, because like, it ends up as a red. So I know that they don't check yellow cards and they don't check second yellows because cause it's still a yellow. But a second yellow obviously means a red, which means in some instances, maybe not all, but in some instances, a bad yellow in that point is game-changing. Do you know what I mean? So I, I I think that because the result of it is potentially so big, then they should do second yellows. But I, I agree that they probably aren't going to do yellows overall because um, uh, because that would, I mean, they'd be checking a lot then, wouldn't they, to be fair? <laughs> Let me throw you a different question, Ben, that I wanted to throw you earlier. So I'm going to put another layer on this. So you'll see, you, you, I agree with you. It was the accumulation of the period of time we had the ball is the reason why Tomiyasu was just the unlucky guy that had the ball. He had the hot potato at the point where the yellow card came out. I get that. But do you think that with the referee in the mind that Tomiyasu isn't really the aggressor in this situation and he's given him a yellow card just to be like you're getting yellow cards because your team has kind of put you into the situation? So when you turns him and Tomiyasu... I mean, I say... He grabs his shirt. It can definitely be yellow. I'm not completely against the idea of it being yellow. It's about consistency. But at the same time, do you think the referee should look at that challenge a little bit differently with the knowledge that the first yellow card wasn't really Tomiassu's fault?
2: I think most referees do. Um, And I think referees against most teams do. Um, I just think that the inconsistency is so... um, You know, it's not necessarily like... A specific arsenal thing like that could happen for wolves against i don't know um everton or something but it's more just the fact that you will see something very similar happen uh i don't know down the road two hours later in the next televised kickoff that won't be a yellow card for either offense and you sort of sat there going well you gotta balance it it's, you're, you're all playing the same game which should be playing with the same rules and that's you know there's there's obviously a Additional thing of the away crowd or the home crowd, rather, when you go away to somewhere, you're always going to be slightly unfavoured, I think, just in human nature by decisions. um But yeah, just the idea that you can be sent, like, because the sending off is a big thing in terms of football. Like, when you make it 11 versus 10, it's a massive advantage, as we saw. Like, Palace just penned us back. And to be sent off for uh, two uh, incidents that are so innocuous it feels like the punishment doesn't fit the crime, but at the same time you could easily say, based on the current rules, that both of them are yellow cards. It's just that at the end, when you're saying when you when you look at it at the end of the game, you say, well Tommy S has been sent off because he took too long or well, he was the full guy for a throw in, and, you know, he's touched Jordan IU as Jordan I run past him. So it just feels like, as I say, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, which I think is the problem, because there'll be a lot more grievous um, like crimes uh, committed on a football pitch. If we're going to use crimes, um, that don't get punished, you know, um, so I think that it's a it's an issue with comp- competence of referees, and I'm sure we'll get apologies after apologies this season. But it just feels like they need to work out what they're doing and sort it out. But for year after year, we've said this, and it feels like already after two weeks, we're on some sort of like really crap new season of a sitcom where you know the lines and you've got the really bad fake laugh track in the background and you're just a bit bored of the whole thing that's how I feel I'm sort of just a bit bored of the whole thing it just it, it, it doesn't make me angry anymore it just makes me sort of sad that games are being ruined by referees who either can't referee or are too quick to administer punishments. I do
1: think there's definitely a thing with referees and, and obviously they won't admit to this I, I saw the um the anthony taylor um podcast with high, the high performance one and i don't really know what i was expecting when he did that podcast i think i was maybe hoping that you'd see a bit more of an admission of guilt of that the level of refereeing more than anything i wasn't expecting him to say that they were biased towards anyone but it felt to me like even in that podcast because i mean for the referee for pgmol to sanction him to go on on there then maybe you you probably know from there that it's not really going to be the most open <laughs> admission that they need to be better. But he was saying things along the lines of, well, you know, we get like the heavy majority of stuff, right. And blah, blah, blah. blah. It's almost like that mate you your shit. And I feel almost kind of bad for saying that because I don't want to always be talking about referees, but a lot of the time, the, the, the quality of refereeing isn't, isn't there. And I know that sometimes they get done over by new rules I know that sometimes you know it's hard, and I know ref- being referee is hard. It's really hard. I'm not saying I could do a better job if I was on that pitch. I'm just saying that it's not unfair to expect the the highest paid referees in the country to you know mm. perform to the same standard as their counterparts from overseas that, as far as I'm aware, are paid far less. Um, uh, but I think I think one of the things
2: that we have the major issue with is transparency as well, like if someone could explain, like if a referee could sit there and explain why Jordan IU wasn't sent off for his second yellow card offence, but Tommy Tomiyasu was, and literally come out and say it, and you know, you say, I'm following this rule and this is why this is happening. I feel like my men, like loads more people would be able to say, oh, okay, I don't agree with it, but I understand why he's come to that decision. Whereas at the moment, it's sort of, you'll see people on on social media, myself included, i would be like, well, why didn't You get a second yellow? And it's sort of, funnels into this tornado of um, like anger and sometimes abuse and vitriol towards referees because you don't fully understand the thought process. So therefore, it feels like either your team is being hard done by or they've made a massive error when, you know, in fact, you might say, well, I don't think Jordan deserved a second yellow card there because although he's holding Saka back, Saka's got nine players between him, him and the goal. Like that is entirely possible. But you can only speculate and that that just makes it there's there's so much room for interpretation and antagonism that it just makes it such a difficult place to be i think
1: yeah and as uh, as i think drew was was saying earlier when um you know the, we we got the red cards and um it, it it felt like at a point there was literally just like 15 minutes of straight pressure and we couldn't get out and the, the ball wasn't even going off the pitch much we couldn't even reset for like goal kicks or anything um, but there was a point after then where uh, subs were made um, possibly you know, some people would have said the subs should be made a little bit earlier but they saw um, Gabriel came on the 70th minute Jorginho came on the 79th minute and Zinchenko and Kirio both came on in the 89th minute and one of the big things of these subs was all of them completed every pass they attempted they when they came on Gabriel 1 of 1, Jorginho 10 of 10 Zinchenko 6 of 6, Kirio 4 of 4 and I think that it's a really interesting kind of thing to think about in the sense that you're at Salas Park, you're one man down and probably the gut reaction is Gabriel makes a lot of sense because you need a a raw defender, someone that's actually going to be able to do this. Um, But I do think that in the Jorginho and Zinchenko particularly coming on, those technical profiles... Just was able to get us up the pitch. We were able to keep the ball for a bit. I thought Jorginho was outstanding when he came on. So I'm gonna point this towards yourself, Varun. Um what did you think of these subs and why do you think they had such a big telling on um on the rest of the game?
0: I think uh one thing obviously is that with the subs we made, most of our attackers went off. So we didn't really have an outlet. Uh but That, I guess, was kind of the role of Havertz, which is why he was the one attacker that sort of remained on, that if we did get an opportunity to calm down the play and actually play the ball out a little bit in a controlled way, then at least he could be the one that holds it up and lets other people come in. In order to complement that, you then need enough technicians on the pitch, enough people with good close control in tight areas who can then supplement... Havertz holding the ball up higher up pitch and then actually make sure we we continue to have possession of the ball rather than just clearing it like we were doing for most of those last 10 or 12 minutes. Um, I think in that sense, the subs made perfect sense because we know Saka's versatility allows him to play left back or left wing back for us well enough. I know he hasn't done it uh, consistently for a while, but we've seen him do it before. So that's why he was covering for a while until we made the right subs. But then with Zinchenko on, and we know how good he is in midfield or defense, or just generally with his control of the ball, we basically had our first choice back four um, from last season to see out the game when we had Zinchenko, Gabriel Saliba, and White. And then, obviously, Jorginho, we know, is good uh, with control of the ball. We also know he has a good eye for a pass. But now that Saka was free to kind of roam up the pitch again with Zinchenko going on, it was a perfect sub because now you saw immediately, as soon as we had all those players on, we started passing around the ball like we'd been doing in the first half again Um, and just holding the ball, maintaining possession and keeping it in a calm, steady manner, not just panicked and trying to keep hold of the ball. We actually had possession and Palace had to backtrack. Uh, it, it's 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 that plan B that uh, I'm sure Arteta would have wanted going into this season. Last season, our, our solution was put Rob Holding on as an extra centre-back to shore things up. Now we have subs who, yes, will do that through their technical ability, but also pose enough attacking threat that, you know, it's not like we're not still going to counter-attack if the opportunity arises. So, great subs, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, and I think on another day, um, uh, obviously, the been better, or sorry, worse. Um, uh, it could have been completely different if those subs potentially didn't come on the pitch. And one thing I also want to kind of say about those subs is that in the last um, eight minutes of the game, Christopher Palace didn't have any shots. And I think that um, uh, the the subs combined with just the the emerging diehard attitude that we're seeing in the team every week now just um, is allowing us to grind out these huge, huge um, victories. Um, I think that's a good place to leave it. We will be back later in the week for our Fulham preview, which is uh, the midday, um, sorry, the uh, the three o'clock Saturday kickoff. Um, I'm going to go back to my random superlative adjective generator to say goodbye to the people who've been joining me, which is the moistest Varun, the worldliest Drew and the tallest Ben. Uh, so wow. thanks very much guys you've been listening to the oh, I, I,
0: I need a different one you, okay you are
1: the next one's creamiest mate it's not really much different i'm just not having
0: any luck with this am i no um, i, uh, I, toughest, I sign the, the toughest. off with the toughest i'll take that one <laughs> i'll take that uh, one
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this has been the Bruce blada FC podcast thanks so much for listening as i say we'll be back with the preview pod late this week please check that out and have a great day thanks very much
0: is joining in and he's seen Martinelli and strongly set it for Saliba for Saka beaten out by the and touched in by Jesus uh-huh. Kiyosaka Saka. Yes. Oh.